If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. If you don't, you're in luck. We'll have it on the screen for you here in just a second. I'm have, I have to bring this up here today because I, I bet you can understand this. I got a little scratch going on because I left Orlando, Florida on New Year's Day, and it was 80 degrees, and I came up here, and it's like negative 1,000, okay? I know Tom is from Michigan, so he's, you know, he almost came in a Speedo this morning. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I can't handle it because I got Florida blood here. I'm so, I'm so glad to be with you. It's, it's so good to be with you again and start this new year with our faith family here. And um, we, we celebrated the new year. We brought it in. We're, how many, eight days into it. This is the eighth day into the new year. New years are times of evaluating your life. I mean, you do the year in retrospect. You know, you, we have the, you've seen all those as we've been gearing up for the new year, all the in memoriam things they do. They talk about all the people we lost in 2016. In 2016, everybody talks about kind of a rough year. And so we go into 2017, and all of us at this point, we're at, at New Year's, you evaluate your life. You could see this, okay? Gym memberships are at an all-time high because you evaluate your life, and you're like, oh, I overdid it on the last year, okay? <laughs> Maybe not just at the holidays, all right? So gym membership goes up. You ponder life. You ponder where you are. You look in the mirror, and you say, what needs to change? We ponder life's meaning and its aim. We think, hey, where am I headed? What am I doing? And we make resolutions seeking to change and seeking that course correction, seeking this time. So New Year's are a time for evaluation of where am I headed? Thankfully, the last several years, I got, I've, had, I've got the opportunity to go to Passion Conference with some of our students. I think I got a picture of it back there. Um, Passion Conference, if you don't know what it is, it's a gathering of 18 to 25-year-olds. I know you're saying, hey, you're not 25. Uh, I know, okay? It's very evident when you're around a bunch of 18 to 25. In fact, 55,000 of them in the Georgia Dome. Um, this is a gathering, and as you can see, that's, that's kind of a picture of it. Um, in the middle of that arena is a 200-foot by 100-foot-wide cross that became the stage for that, that week. Every time I get to go to this conference, I am reminded and astounded by what God is doing in the world. Secondly, I'm also challenged and moved. I, I, it's kind of like someone sticks an adrenaline needle right into your heart when you get to sing to Jesus with 55,000 people. And I, I, every year at this time, I'm thankful for it because I don't know about you, sometimes I get in a rut, sometimes my heart is cold, sometimes I look in the mirror, and what should, what should be there is not there. And when I look at my soul, it seems so, so beat down. Sometimes it feels, it feels dead. I know that my heart should be open and, and be warm to the things of God, but sometimes they are not. And I think we need a course correction, and this is a perfect time for it when you're in the state, when you're already in evaluation state anyway. Passion has been that for me, one of the many things God uses to just rekindle the fire in my heart. We're going to today look at a man who was in a time of transition, in a time of looking at his aim in his life, and it's John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He's named that not because he was necessarily a Baptist like we would think of a Baptist, but that's what he did. He baptized people in repentance into the water. He immersed them. And John, in the, book, in the Gospel of John, we hear two things. We see 
John and Jesus kind of again and again, we see them again and again in the first couple of, of sections, and it's meant to show us something. John, as he was evaluating his life in ministry in John 3.30, and this is really going to be our main point today, he said this, he, talking about Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. In fact, I got a picture for you, so just remember, if you're going to leave here today, like, what was church about? Sometimes you go to church and you leave, and you're like, what was church about? Oh, no, Jesus probably, okay? And if you're going to a good church, it was, all right? And they used the Bible, okay? But we sometimes leave church like, what? if you want to go and leave here with something, here's what it is, and it's this picture, he must increase, but I must decrease. I think we got it back there. Is it coming up? Working on it? Hold your horses. Talk amongst yourselves. I'm just kidding. We'll be, we'll be oh, there we go. That's my bad. My bad. This was kind of last minute ad, so no harm on them. It's all on me, okay? Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And that's where John ended up. But to end up, to see where he ends up in this phrase in verse 30 of chapter 3, we got to start in John chapter 1. Why would John say that he must decrease and that Jesus must increase? Why would he say that? Because Jesus is worthy. And I want us to put, we've, we've come out of the Advent season, and I want us to see that Jesus is worthy. So we're going to do something, all right? We're going to have to be super caffeinated this morning. I know it's, it's early. I know it is really cold out there. I hope you had some coffee, because we got a lot to read this morning. In the Gospel of John, in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, it talks about the greatness of Jesus. And we just come out of the Advent season, and here's what we got. In John 1, 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It starts off just like Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created. This says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we have this unpacking, this unfolding of the fact that Jesus is God. He's always been God. He's always existed with God as the second person of the Trinity, and everything was created through him, and he is here, and it says that light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Light is shining in the dark world. The light has come 2,000 years ago. It's what we celebrated Christmas, that God stepped, into, stepped onto earth in human form, and he came to live the life that we could not live, to bring truth, hope, love, grace, that we might have eternal life in him. And so, the man, that first five verses right there, it is so loaded with stuff. And if you ever have a Jehovah's Witness come to your house, they're going to tell you that, that this is not right. They're crazy. First off, they don't know Greek. Secondly, if you, you don't, the light shines in the darkness. How could that not be God? And if you really just start believing this passage and telling it to them, they will leave your porch quickly. I never forget one day they caught me at a bad time. I came to the door, and I was not in a great mood, so don't follow me in this one. And I finally said, listen, let's get down to it. I believe in the Trinity. I believe Jesus is God. You don't. <gasps> You caught us. I know, right? It's like you don't post this on websites and stuff, right? And I said, I also believe the Spirit's God. And the, the lady who was there goes, oh, Lord. And I said, I know. You think I'm a heretic. Get off of my porch. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Amen. Whew, I'm caffeinated this morning. Glad to be back. <laughs> that is how great Jesus is, and I hope you see that he's worthy. He was in the beginning. 
says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. He's God. Not only that, all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. It was all made for Him through Him. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there was a man, in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came to witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. So John is not this Jesus. Jesus is glorious. He is the light. But John is one who bears witness to the light and says, hey, there's one coming. And he was not the light. And this is going to be very, you need to understand this. John knows and he proclaims and it is on the front of his mouth that he is not the light. That he is not the centerpiece of history. He's just one that is pointing to it. And it says in verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. You just think about this when you're thinking about, I know you think Christmas is over with. But I just want you to think, without the coming, we don't have the life, the perfect life, and we don't have the death, and we don't have the resurrection. And so you see here that the one who made the world came into the world and took his first breaths as a human several thousand years ago in a manger. I mean, Mary kissed, as she kissed Jesus' head, she was kissing God incarnate. I, what a phenomenal thing that we could not devise on our own. It had to be from the mind and plan of God. And so it goes on in exalting Jesus and showing he's worthy. He says, he came to his own. This is so, this is so wild, and it shows our heart's condition. He came to his own, talking about the people of Israel, and his own people did not receive him. Example, there's a cross coming. And this says in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And then it says, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is how worthy our God is and how great Jesus is that he would come to live to die and that he would be rejected, but those who would receive would have the right to become the children, co-heirs with God. How amazing and worthy is Jesus? And the first sections of John's gospel are, are giving us this, that, that Jesus is amazing. He is God in the flesh, come to save. He's a light shining in the darkness. He's life. And then on the, uh, on the juxtaposition is John over there saying, yeah, that's right. He's like a hype man. You know what a hype man is. If you, are, if you, are, if you grew up in the 90s, you know what a hype man is. The hype man it's kind of like if you've ever listened to a record with Little John on it, okay? It's like, okay, okay. Whatever the person says, the rapper, the DJ, it's like, okay, all right? That's like, yeah, he's just there to just agree. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like this. He's like, the world, the, Jesus is the word of God. And John's over there, like, yeah, preach, son. Okay, that's what he's like. Point over here. He's the word. He's the light. And John's over there, like, yep. Holla? I mean, that's what it's like. Some of you just tuned me out immediately when I went little John. I apologize profusely. I can't help that. 
Verse 14, this is, this is just the greatness of Jesus, the worthiness of Jesus displayed again. Verse 14, and the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, it tabernacled, it came and put on flesh, and he moved into our neighborhood. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the shining forth of his inward, his inward greatness. We have seen his glory, glory as the only one of the Father, only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And listen, it goes back. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He moved into the neighborhood, he's the light, and John's like, That's what I'm talking about. Verse 16, and from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now this is, this is amazing. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But Jesus has made him known. We can see the Father through the Son. I mean, that shows us, because you look sometimes, when the, and people talk about this, this difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, that's a bunch of hogwash because there's grace all through both of those things. But I want you to see, if you want to understand the heartbeat of God, you look no farther than Jesus. That's why he's so worthy. The heartbeat of God is not to leave us in our sins. The heartbeat of God is to come and to be rejected, and to be crucified for our sins. So he does not want you to stay in your sin. The heartbeat of God is not to leave you to your own devices. The heartbeat of God, as we see in Jesus, is to bring light to your life, and life to your life. That is the heartbeat of God. And when we are in the dark moments, and the dark situations, and we evaluate our life, and we see the darkness, just hear this, that in Jesus you see God. And that God is not aloof to us, but he came to us and he offers us something greater than we could ever imagine. The ability to become the sons and daughters of God, not by being good, but by trusting him. And that is light and life, and we can see God. If you know who Jesus is, you have seen God. He has made him known fully, and he is worthy. And then we got the hype man, John, shows back up in this section again. You with me now? I've been reading for a while. You with me? Okay, there we go. That was two of you. That was perfect. All right. <laughs> Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. So it goes back to John. Remember, Jesus is awesome. John is the hype man. He's pointing to Jesus. And then we get to Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Because you got John. He's preaching. We know from other gospels the dude was kind of weird. He was out in the wilderness. He was wearing camel's hair clothing, and he was eating locusts and honey. Yes, locusts are bugs. You, dip, I, you would have to dip that in honey, I would imagine, okay, to make that taste good. And he's crying, repent, and he's baptizing people, and people are going out to him, and the Pharisees have, are uncomfortable. Go back to the other Gospels to supplement this understanding so you understand this. And they ask him, who are you? They want to know if he is the Messiah, if he is the one who, who John is talking about. Verse 20 says this, he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He said, I am not the one who deserves the glory. 
just keep that in your mind. Just point for this and just, just, just understand this phrase. You are not the one who deserves the glory. Your life should not revolve around you. There is something better, something bigger, and his name is Jesus. And so John sees this, and he confessed openly and didn't deny it. But he confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the one you're talking about. And they asked him, then what, what, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. Verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? And he need, he, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, he's the fulfillment of, the, of this passage Isaiah that talks about the precursor of the Messiah. G, John is getting the way ready for Jesus. Every part of his life is pointing to the fact that Jesus is better. Do you get that? Every part of John's life is pointing to the fact that Jesus is better. His life is not about him. It's about Showing Jesus to be better. Just go ahead and put that in, put that in the memory bank for a second. We're going to get there. Go, we're, we're going somewhere with that. Verse 24 says this. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then what are you baptizing if you are neither the, king, the Christ nor, the, nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered, and he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John not only said it's all about Jesus and said his whole life was to prepare the way for Jesus, but he also recognizes Jesus is so worthy that he could not even unstrap his sandals. Now, you probably heard that before. If you've been in church for a while, you maybe even heard somebody say that. I'm not even, he, you know, Jesus is so great, he's not even worthy to untie his sandals. Do you realize how nasty Middle Eastern feet in the first century were? I just want you to think about that. Bathing was not a regular thing in first century Palestine, first off. Deodorant, Gillette, was not a best a man could get because it did not exist. These people stink. And they walk for several miles in leather sandals. And to touch someone's feet was the epitome of uncleanliness. And he is saying, I'm not even worthy to do the most, one of the most disgusting things is to unstrap this man's sandals, which would have been covered in dirt and sweaty and nasty. That is how great John saw Jesus to be. And you see, that's, that's what's happening in the gospel, saying John is the one who's come to point the way to one who is better, one who is greater, one who is the Son of God, one who is so great that he is not even worthy of unstrapping his sandals. That is how worthy and great Jesus is. And John is the hype man saying he's the one, he's the one. His whole life, the direction of all parts of his life is to make much of Jesus. And then we see Jesus' ministry ramp up after that. Calls disciples, goes to a wedding, they run out of wine, and, they, and his mom comes up to it, Jesus, this is in chapter 2 of John, and said, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he says, what's, got, what's this got to do with me, Mom? And, and he kind of, he, in that, he just, go ahead, says, go ahead, I'm going to make it. So he takes this water has him fill it up, and it turns into wine. Not only wine, but the best wine. It shows that Jesus brings life to dead situations. And so his ministry is starting to ramp up. 
And he is preaching, and then he has a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3 come up to him, and he's a, he's a teacher of the law, but he wants to know how he can get eternal life, and, he want, and Jesus tells him he has to be born again, and that's where we get John 3.16. You know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why am I walking you through this? Because I want you to see there's building a case that Jesus is awesome, that he is God, that he is light, that he is worthy of all of our sacrifice, all of our praise, all of our life abandoned to point to him. That is the point. And then after we get to John 3, 16, we get to John 3, verse 22. Actually, yeah, we'll skip down to verse 25. No, we'll start at verse 22. That's what we'll do. Sorry, a little indecision. We're good. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he recognized that there were some of them, he recognized with them, or excuse me, he remained with them there and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put into prison. So here's the thing. Jesus now, his ministry's ramping up and John's is going on at the same time. Jesus is baptizing in one place, John is baptizing the other one. It also has this little thing and verse, just, I want you to note this, go ahead and if you get your Bible, you under, underline this, verse 24, John had not yet been put in prison. Do you know what that means? He's, a, he's going to get put into prison. Wouldn't you love that to be in the Bible for everyone to read, that he's not in prison yet, but he's going? I mean, that great? And that's like recorded history. Just note that. We're going to come back to that. Verse 25. Remember, Jesus, John, they're baptizing at the same time. John's ministry has been going on. His ministry is pointing to Jesus. Jesus' ministry, he is the Son of God. He has come to bring light, life, grace, truth. He's come to be the perfect Lamb of God. He's come to die for sins. And now these ministries are going on at the same time. And then we have a discussion breaks out in verse 25 of John chapter 3. And it says this. Now a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. It's a reference to Jesus. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You just need, I mean, have you ever talked to somebody who's obviously been with God and sometimes they just say things that just floor you. And that was John the Baptist. First off, I mean, the guy's got like a thorax hanging out of his tooth from all the munching on, you know, locusts. And he's a crazy looking dude. The hair and the beard are out of sight. He looks like a wild man. They come and ask him a question, and he just starts off with this. I mean, this is a mind-blowing statement. You just need this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Do you understand something? A divine revelation is needed for you to believe the things of God. And if you believe the things of God, it's a miracle from God. And some people's eyes are being opened now through the preaching of John and through the ministry of Jesus that Jesus is the Christ. And that is what he said. He wants to preface everything. Now listen, if you can see spiritual truth, it's from God. When we get down to verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness what I said. He wants to, this is the emphasis in John's life. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. All of John's life was to make much of Jesus. 
Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. So he drops this bomb and says, unless heaven reveals it, you can't understand. And then he talks about in this other illustration, and he says, think about a wedding, if you will. Which thankfully, over the last couple of years, like, people are getting married at this room in the journey. So shout out. I see some of you out there, okay? Think about it. The best man is not the focal point of the wedding, Right? He's standing down there a lot of times, most of the time, with the groom. But is the focus on the best man at a wedding? And if you go to a wedding where the focus is on the best man, that's weird, right? You might need to leave that wedding or like, time out, what is happening? Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> the best man's like over there, like he's, he's dancing. I mean, like, simmer down, son, all right? What are you coming there to see? The people get married. And so Jesus is obviously referring to here, he is the bridegroom. And when you hear the bridegroom's voice, or the, when, you hear the, yeah, when you hear the bridegroom's voice, you go like, yes, that's who I'm here to see. That's the main event. You're not here to hear the best man. Or even the preacher up at the front. You're not here to see them. You are here, the focus at a wedding is on the marriage on the groom and the bride. And that is what John is saying. All that I am doing is pointing to the one who's now speaking, who is Jesus, who is the one full of grace and truth. I know I'm belaboring this point, but the Bible belabors it, and that's why I want you to get it. Jesus is worthy of praise. He is the Christ. He is the God. He is God incarnate. He has always been God. He has come from God. He has come to die. He has come to live perfectly. He has come to bring light to men so that all who believe in him might have eternal life. John is not the Christ. He is the one who is the hype man saying, prepare the way. Jesus is coming. Everything about his life points to Jesus. That is an emphasis in the gospel. And then he said, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It was John's joy to live a life not about himself, but about Jesus. Then verse 30, this is our text, and this is what I hope. We want to mirror John in this. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's important because their ministries are going on at the same time at this point. Jesus is baptizing, and John's baptizing. John is realizing that all the things, his life's work is now being fulfilled in Jesus and he must promote Jesus like he's already been doing, but his, his work, Jesus must increase and John must decrease. And so here is what I hope that you understand this year. I hope that our aim in life, as we evaluate it at this new year, I hope our aim in life would mirror that of John's. Now, you are not, you are not uh, predicted in the prophets like he was to come and to make much of Jesus. But every person who has been saved by the grace of Jesus, it lives to make much of Jesus. To spread his fame far and wide, to live for his pleasure and his glory. And I hope that all of us, and I know you may have heard this before, and this may be where you're tracking and where you're going, but we all need encouragement in this, that this year in 2017, in our church, in our family, in our own personal lives, we, we, I hope this is our prayer as a church and your prayer individually, that Jesus must increase because he is worthy. Verse 
and that I must decrease because I only find my worth in him. He is so much greater, and everything that's good in me is from him. That is, our, that is our heart's desire is we want Jesus to increase in our life, increase in our family, increase in our church, and we want to see ourselves decrease. Now, I'll tell you what. If we left it there like with those words, we could probably get you real pumped up. Probably have an invitation right now. We get the band coming back up. We play just as I am. People come down like, yes, he must increase and I must decrease. Yes. What does that mean? Right? We say stuff we don't understand. And so I hope we put some, some feet to this this morning. By seeing this, I want to just give you three things of what it looks like for Jesus to increase and for us to decrease. The first one is this. What does it look like? What does that mean? You must abandon your agenda and submit your plans to Jesus. Abandon, let me say this again. What does it mean for Jesus to increase and for us to decrease? It means abandon your agenda and submit your plans to Jesus. John was a very successful, he was very successful at what he was doing. So much so, as we've seen, he made the religious leaders squirm because he was baptizing so many people. Remember, we go back in John 1, they were asking, like, who are you? You're causing Christ to stir. A lot of people are coming to you to be baptized. Who are you? So his ministry is going gangbusters. He's still going on when Jesus is here, when he realizes who Jesus is. And we see one of the things we have in, that happens in between chapter 1 and the section we read in chapter 3 is that Jesus, or John the Baptist sees Jesus, and Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And when, he see, when John sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit of God descends like a dove on him, and we hear a voice from heaven say, This is my beloved Son, of whom I am well pleased. John, his ministry was great, but his ministry, he let it go into decline so that the glory could go to Jesus. His ministry agenda was put to the back burner because his plans were completely and utterly submitted to Jesus. So what does it mean for Jesus to increase and us to decrease? Is it to take our plans, crumple them up in a big ball, throw them in the recept waste receptacle, put some lighter fluid on them, light them on fire, and then take the ashes, try to burn them again, and then sprinkle them out somewhere else because they don't matter. And then to take all of our plans and submit them to Jesus. I want to show you something. It's a picture. I'm one of these guys, when I get in a situation, sometimes I'll get out my, it's like, especially if it's weird or just striking to me, I'll take a picture of it. And I didn't plan on this one. Can you see this? Do your head like this. I'm sorry, I didn't turn, I didn't rotate it. That's my bad. Can anybody tell what that is? This is a crowd. I wasn't on my side, okay? This is a crowd at Passion. Do you see this one dude over here, just like on the ground? I could not help myself. There's, just, there's thousands of people out here singing praises to Jesus, and we're singing this song. It's, it, the song is new. You may hear it someday on the radio, and it says, Lord, I want a heart abandoned. And they just kept singing, Lord, I want a heart abandoned. I don't want silver. I don't want gold. I want you. And I just saw this kid crumple. I'm up in the nosebleeds because I'm old and didn't want to fight with all the crowd. I'm like, oh, forget you, kids. Oh, I'm, you whippersnappers. I'll go to the top, okay? So I'm at the top looking down, and I see this kid crumple. I don't know who he is. He might be a punk. I don't know. 
he crumples and he falls and he just you could you just see his, his body just sink in to submission that was a it was like what I, it's what I wanted my heart to do to Jesus like you are so worthy your plans are so much higher you created me for your glory you called me out of darkness in the light I my plans and my agenda are now yours my direction in life is no longer I want to accomplish X, Y, and Z. My direction in life is I want to follow you. Put a vision and dream in my heart for where you want me to go. But everything, make every part of me in submission to you. When I saw that kid crumple, I said, that is what I want my life to do. I want my life to crumble under the weight of Jesus' glory. And I call us all to this, that Jesus is better so give up your agenda and submit your plans to him. This can be seen in an illustration I saw several years ago. Coming to Jesus is basically this, because he calls us to follow him. He calls us to take up our cross. He calls us to forsake everything. And In fact, he says, if you don't give up everything, you can't follow me. Do you get that? I mean, that's, we, we try to like, we try to like, you know, push that to the side. But he says, unless you give up everything, you can't be my disciple. Unless you give up your sins that you love, you can't be my disciple. Unless you give up your agenda, you can't be my disciple. Unless you do that. We can't take the word, we have to take the words of Jesus seriously, folks. And I, there was a, a camp speaker's name was Ed Newton a couple of years ago. When I needed this to hear this in my mouth, because I'm trying to make plans, trying to scheme for my own life, he said, here's what, here's what you do when you come to God. You sign your name to a blank contract, and you hand that piece of paper to him. And that is what John had done. All of his life's ambition was to make much of Jesus. And it, because of that, his actions followed his ambitions. That's why when he gets to this place, his ministry is going gangbusters. He can step aside and he can say, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. I want to challenge you. And I'll challenge myself to take your plan, burn it, come with a blank contract to Jesus and say, wherever you lead, I will go. God has, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him and abandon all. So abandon your agenda and submit your plans. The second thing, what does it look like for Jesus to increase and, I, and me to decrease? It's, sec, it's this. It's to decide to live for the pleasure and glory of Jesus, not our own. Do you know what? Uh, when we talk about this, you ever, you ever think about church? Sometimes we think that like, we make one big decision, and it's all going to be gravy after that. Like It'll be easy to follow Jesus. Once I make the big decision, once I make the crying decision, once I make that one decision, like, like I, I take, used to take kids to youth camp all the time, and, and it was funny. Like it was, it, Not funny like ha-ha, but like funny kind of just how it is. And you can drop that picture now, by the way. I'm sorry, because everybody's neck's probably still doing this. My, my fault on that one. We'd take them to camp. God would speak to them inevitably through the guy preaching the word or speak to him through the music or speak to him through the, 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 um, you know, the small group times. And the, sometimes the kids would fall down in the front of the church and they would come up even make de declarations of, uh, and they would confess their sins and all this kind of stuff. And then two, three, four, five weeks later, 
that fire's gone, that kid is back to being a punk and not following Jesus, and you see it, and there's like this cycle that would, that would continue to happen. And one of the reasons I think that happens is because we tell, we think, we tell people and we kind of give people this idea that once you decide to follow Jesus once, or once you decide once to be obedient, that that's it, and that it will be easier after you make this one decision. How many of you is that true for? Why do we constantly do it to people? We do it now. Just leave all your burdens down here. No, you know what the call of Christ is? It's to endure and to continually lay your burdens and continually decide to give up your life and continually decide to die, to die every day, to give every day, to repent every day, to do all these things every day. No wonder our kids are getting discouraged sometimes because we think they make this one big you know, decision. And No, it's a series of decisions prompted by the work of the Spirit in your life. And so when I say decide to live your life for the pleasure and glory, I'm saying you decide daily to live your life for the pleasure and glory of Jesus and not your own. What does that mean? What does it mean to live for someone's pleasure? It means this. I live to please Jesus, not myself. It has to be a decision for us every day to live for Jesus and not ourselves. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, I think you understand what it means. You know what it means to live for yourself. We all do. I mean, we really do. Here is how most of us make our decisions. And most, unless you fi- are fighting for the work of the Spirit, this is how you make your decisions. I'm not throwing stones. This is, I'm like with you. What do I like? That is what I will do. We're talking base now, right? I want Mexican food. I get Mexican food. Who are you living for? Self. I want to go on vacation. I want to make that happen so I can go on vacation. We live. Now, there's a part of that that's okay, but there's a part of it that if our plans are not submitted to Jesus and we are living for ourselves and ourselves alone, you know what we'll do? We will put ourselves at the center of our life and make decisions that are based completely on our desires. And I want you to know something about your desires, as strong as they may be, and they may be super, 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 super strong. Those desires are not ultimate. And how many times have you been left by going after a desire, accomplishing it, and realizing that it was wasteful, that it was empty, that it was a broken cistern, that it does not satisfy and that is what it means to live for the pleasure of Jesus, is to not make all your decisions based on how I feel or what I want or what I desire. But to have a desire change. And you say, I desire to live for you, and I make my decisions to, to be pleasing to you, Jesus. To live for Jesus' pleasure is inwardly, that you are looking inwardly to please him in all things. The second thing, to live for Jesus' glory, and remember we decide to live for the pleasure and glory of Jesus, not our own. The second thing is this, glory is outwardly focused, okay? And it means this, I will live so that people will see how great Jesus is and not how great I am. That's what it means. We decide daily what it means for him to increase and us to decrease is we decide daily 
to live for his glory so that people will look at our lives and see Jesus is great and not us is great. How many of you ladies out there have heard the phrase mommy guilt before? Right? I'm about to meddle, okay? Just go ahead. And guys, we got it too, okay? I mean, just different ways. But mommy guilt says that you, la- you ladies feel like you're not measuring up because you're not doing, it's not organic, spoon-fed from third world. I mean, you're not, I mean, it's not, it's antibiotic-free, GMO-free. You're not doing this. What you're, you're, not, you're not elf on the shelf. You're not doing whatever you're supposed to do. You're not packing your kids' lunches that are themed and, like, have rockets coming out of them and confetti exploding when you open it. And you're, like, feeling less than you should because... And here's the reason why most of the guilt is there, because you think people are looking at you and judging you, saying, that's not as good as mom as me, because I gave them your play, and they needed Trader Joe's like super organic stuff. They're judging me because I gave them regular yogurt, and the Gogurt one too, okay? They're judging me. This is just for you mommies out there and for all of us. When we do that, you know what we're doing? We are living for ourselves. You hear me? Guys, we do it too. Most of the time, when we, a lot of times, even when we're trying to be self, selfless, if we will, and care about our family, we're just worried about how it's going to look on us that our kids made that decision. You hear me? I know it well and speak it well because I live it. And I want you to know something. There's a freeing nature to decide to live for the glory of Jesus. And we must take our desire to live for our own glory through the power of the Spirit, strangle it. Because we are to live for the glory of Jesus, to make Him known and not to make us much of us. And that leads us to this. The final thing of what I think and what we can see in Scripture, that it means that Jesus to increase and for us to decrease is this. Follow Jesus in faith to places where only he would get the glory. Let me say that again. What does it look like for Jesus to increase, for us to decrease? It's to follow Jesus in faith to places where he could only get the glory. Remember I told you to to, to underline this and take note of it? In John 3, verse 24, it said that John had not yet been in prison. Here's how John's ministry ends. In prison at first, he speaks truth to a king about his sexual sin. And then you know what happens? He ends up decapitated and on his head on the table of the king. Now, that doesn't seem very appetizing to me, to have somebody's severed head on a plate. But apparently, that's the way they rolled at this time. And so they had John's severed head on the plate. You were not expecting that. That wasn't a feel-good story, was it? <laughs> you know? How does the problem? He's taken up to heaven on the cloud like Elijah. Nope. Decapitated head on somebody's table. How does that guy remain faithful? How did he stay so weird in the face of everybody going, hey, dude, can you calm it down? How does he preach Jesus in the face of all these religious leaders? How does he do it? He does it by following God through faith, point, with faith knowing the Christ is coming, knowing he's following God. And God led him to places that he could not control, places where he was not comfortable, and places where only God would get the glory. Only God can get the glory out of a decapitated, decapitated prophet. Right? 
Because it seems like that's like a real bad, if, if you were thinking like of lists of things that would be bad, decapitation is like really high on that list, right? That is how, that is where he, that's where we go. I want you to know, I want you to see this. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Then it lists all of those heroes of the faith who trusted God, and most of whom ended up in bad situations. Most of whom ended up in situations where they were way out of their comfort zone, way out of where they could even do anything. Think about Moses leading the people out. This is one of the ones in, in Hebrews chapter 11. They come to the Red Sea. Could Moses part the sea? No. I can't part a bat. Go home. Try to part the water in your bathtub. Come back when you do it. Let me know. You won't see it at church for months, okay? Years. <laughs> you imagine that? You can't part a bathtub. And he's there, and there's an army coming this way, and he's stuck. And what happens? Only God could come and save the day, and he gets the glory. It's not safe. So I want you to know, if we are to decide every day to live for God's pleasure, that means to please Him and not ourselves in all things, and for His glory. That means for God to be seen as glorious in every part of us. We must, that, that leads us to the place where we must walk in faith to places where only He can get the glory. So this leads us to this prayer, Lord, stretch me. Don't pray this unless you're ready. Lord, stretch me. Take me from where I'm comfortable to impossible places where you alone get the glory. I want to read that to you again. This is dangerous, but this is amazing. Lord, stretch me. Take me from where I am comfortable to impossible places where you alone can get the glory. Romans 4.23 says, anything that is not done from faith is sin. You catching me there here? If we're going to live for God's glory, we must abandon our comfort, and we must go to him who is outside the camp, as Hebrews 13 says. We must go to him getting out of the boat. You remember Jesus and his disciples? All of them were in the boat. The one who ends up in the story is the one who got out of the boat. The one who gives glory to Jesus is the one who sinks and the one who gets picked up. Do you hear me? I want you to get this and understand it clearly. There is a Nerf ball way to live. There's a Nerf way to live. And it's boring. It's coming to church for 30 years and never doing anything dangerous, never doing anything important, you know, keeping yourselves near the things of God, and maybe your faith is real and legitimate, but there is a way to live that is it's running with the Lion of Judah. It's a dangerous way. And that way is the way of faith. That way is the way of saying, God, stretch me, take, from, take me from where I am comfortable to places where only you can make the impossible possible and that people will see it was not me who did it, but you. That's when Jesus gets the glory. Now some of you in here, I need to just preface this for a second. Some of you in here are already at that place where you are in impossible situations. And I don't mean to add insult to your injury. In fact, I want you to know something. If you're already in that impossible place, you know that place where your circumstances are so bad that you need a miracle to come out of it? I want you to know something. He is with you right now. The call is not for you to be stretched. You're already being stretched. The call right now for those who are being stretched is to be faithful for the glory.
Jesus. But for most of us, we're going to seek our comfort in 2017. We're going to seek to be comfortable. We're going to seek to do the things we like, seek to stay within the boundaries of what we are comfortable with. I would tell you that is not where Jesus is. And that is not the type of faith you're called to. You are called to a wild, wonderful faith that makes much of God and has very little concern for your comfort. And I want you to know something. As I saw that kid crumble at the end of Passion Conference, I saw in my heart what I want. I don't know if I'm there, but I want it. I want to crumble to the weight of his glory. And I want to go to places that are uncomfortable for me. I want to be stretched beyond my ability so that people might know Christ and he might get the glory. And I call us to that church. I don't call you to a one-time decision. I call you to a faith to come to that God and decide daily to die. To abandon your agenda, throw them in the trash, burn them. Submit your blank contract to Jesus. To decide and to continue to decide to live for the pleasure and glory of Jesus and not our own and to follow Jesus in faith to places where only he could get the glory. And we're going to ask our communion team to come up right now, and if our communion team would come up. And as they come up, I want to pray this prayer over our church, and we'll take communion. And this communion will be a sign for us. We'll be in in silence and prayer as we contemplate the Lord's word to us. This will be us centering around Christ and saying we want to approach you in faith. So I'm going to pray this prayer for us and we're going to pass out the elements. Lord, stretch us. Take us far from where we are comfortable to impossible places where you alone will get the glory. It's impossible to please you without faith. And anything we don't do from faith is sin. So deliver us from our sight. And deliver us to our faith in you. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. And so Jesus, I pray that we would live this life. Stretch us so that we might live for your pleasure and glory. And as we respond through the supper and through singing, we pray that you would work and move. We are moving with you, Jesus. Amen.